Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be tackling the topic of sodic soils. On today's show, we'll also be taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you can send us emails, radio at agphd.com. I'm Darren Hefty, joined by my brother Brian. And sodic soils are one of those topics that we get discussed or that get discussed a lot at our ag phd soils clinics i know there are growers from all over who are fighting high sodium levels in soils and it really can be a challenge to get things turned around one of the things that we'll talk about today we we don't have the all right you just do this and two seconds later your soil is perfect again but we'll we'll take the look of you know, it probably took us quite a few years to get here. It's going to take us a little bit of time to get this thing turned around. Okay, so i got to tell you a quick story. It was right after a soils clinic that we did here at Baltic at the Morton Center last winter. And right afterwards, uh, a younger gal comes up to me and starts crying. At, this is after our soils clinic. So we'd had a whole day going through soils. Everything's great, you know, talking about, Normally okay, Brian's this, not that this, mean, but apparently you must have been mean that day, Brian. <laughs> well, here, here's the, here's the backstory. So basically this lady has some of her ground that's sodic soil and now it won't produce anything and she's trying to get it fixed. And she's just unbelievably frustrated to the point of crying like I mean it's just a mess now the reason why I'm bringing that up to you right away is this what Darren said is absolutely true sodic soil doesn't occur overnight it's not going to get fixed overnight it's very common when Darren and I talk to farmers who say all right if nothing else I want to leave my ground in better shape for the next generation than, I mean, almost anything else. That's really important to me. Family's important to me. The next generation's important. Young farmers are important to me. All right. Now, here's where we get to ask you the question, are you serious about that? Or is it just lip service? Now, I'm not trying to give you individually a hard time. Uh, but, you know, growing up for me, my dad pushed me every day to the point where... <laughs> I really didn't need any more pushing. But the whole thing is, that's in part what we're here to do, is help push you to be better, to make that ground better for the next generation. Because it's going to possibly take that long, the rest of your lifetime, to fix that sodic soil. So we're going to talk today about how to do it. It is not that tough. It just takes a lot of years, in some cases, to get it back in good shape. So let me first start by defining a sodic soil. So what we mean by a sodic soil is it has a lot of sodium. Okay, high levels of sodium. Now, if you want to get super technical, you can go to a lot of university websites and they will say, all right, to technically be a true sodic soil, it's got to have low electrical conductivity. It's got to have a soil pH above 8.5. It's got to have a sodium adsorption rate above 13. And the soil is in poor physical condition. I'll sum it up to you this way. If we're seeing more than, let's call it 2% sodium in a base saturation test, we're probably going to call that a sodic soil. Now, if you start getting above 5, and especially above 10, you're in big time trouble. I mean big time trouble. The most you can probably get 
it lowered in a year, and I, I don't know because we haven't run enough studies on this, is probably two-tenths of a point. So let's just say, for example, you have a bad spot on your farm that's registering 10% sodium on a base saturation test. What I'm saying is if you figure two-tenths of a point per year and that number needs to be less than one, that's decent soil. It's less than one. So you're 9% too high. I multiply that times five because uh, it's going to take five years to, to drop at a point. That's a 45-year process. Okay. Most likely, it took 45 years to get there, and it's going to take 45 years to fix it. Now, it actually might have taken 50 or 100 or more years uh, to get there. And it, you, I don't know. You might be able to get it fixed in 20 years okay, rather than 45 years. But I know darn well you can't fix it in one year, two years, or three years. So what do you do when you have these high sodium levels? Well, the first thing you got to think about, well, there are two big things you got to think about. Number one, sodium raises soil pH roughly 4 to 1 compared to calcium. Okay, so if I've got too much sodium, that means I'm going to have really abnormally high pH. So it's common when we see the sodium levels above 10%, we see soil pH levels above 9. Okay, both things are terrible. And you might say, boy, i got to fix the pH. Well, you fix the sodium, the pH is going to come down. Okay, that's number one. Number two, sodium by itself isn't leachable. What we have to do is turn it into a salt to make it leachable. Think about sodium chloride. Okay, I mean, anything you can put with sodium to make it a salt, well, hey, now we're in good shape. So a lot of times what we talk about is guys will say gypsum. Okay, that's a good idea in some cases. And let me, let me explain just a little further. With sulfur in the soil, okay, when it's in the sulfate form, that's the form the plants want is sulfate rather than sulfur. But the sulfate form, uh, that can bind with sodium you form sodium sulfate. What is that? It's a salt that's leachable. Okay, now we can flush it out of the soil. But number one thing, and quite frankly, the number one reason why we have sodic soils in the first place is poor drainage. You put tile in that soil, that is the first thing you do when you've got a sodic soil. Okay, tile is number one. Number two, you have to look at your soil test and you have to say, all right, what do I have for free lime and calcium? What do I have for sulfur in that soil? What just what's in there in general? Okay, let's just say for some reason that your calcium levels are high and your sulfur levels are high right now. If your calcium, sulfur, and sodium are all high, then I'm not doing anything other than putting drain tile out there because the sulfur is going to convert over to sulfate and maybe it's already in the sulfate form. It just can't get out of there and it's not binding well with the sodium right now. Fix the drainage. That's number one. Now, if you have really low sulfur levels, you can add elemental sulfur. If you have really low sulfur and calcium levels, then you get gypsum out there. And after all this, or I shouldn't even say after, while you're doing all this, if you want to throw some more high carbon residue out there, like straw, corn stalks, whatever, that'll help with drainage, it'll help speed up this process, you can do those things too and till those in. So there actually are things you can do with sodic soils to fix them. We're going to talk about that all throughout the show today here on Ag PhD Radio. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic insecticides from Atticus LLC. Unwanted insects are a nuisance, but they're no match for Serpent from Atticus. Serpent delivers economical, fast-acting, broad-spectrum control to help your corn, soybeans, and wheat crops thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. 
Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Downtime during spraying can lead to huge yield losses. Keep rolling with the Pentair Hypro Force Field. This pump features a unique self-regulated chamber that allows the pump to run dry while eliminating cracked seals, so you can spray longer and more reliably. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. Stop losing money from your stored grain with the Enzone Fan Control System from FarmShop MFG. The Enzone monitors outside conditions to run your fans so your grain naturally reaches ideal temperature and humidity. For more information, visit FarmShopMFG.com. I've got an axe to grind. I hate bromes. Brome grasses can be brutal on winter wheat yields. If you really want to give winter wheat a fighting chance, be brutal right back with Prepare Burn Down Herbicide. Adding Prepare to your glyphosate extends brome control for up to 21 days, giving young wheat the weed-free head start it needs to make something of itself. Because the cleaner the field, the higher the yield. Talk to your retailer or visit preparewinterwheat.com and always read and follow label directions. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're tackling the subject of sodic soils on today's program. And as Brian has already kind of dug into, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to fix or get turned around, but you definitely can start making the best decisions on your farm and, and the next best thing that you can do to make things get a little bit better and a little bit better. And over time, you can get things turned on around or turned around on your farm. Uh, let's head out to Montana. We've got Clay Jones with us right now, Extension Soil Fertility Specialist there. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys doing? Well, not too bad. You know, you think about Montana, and I generally think about dry land. Is there a lot of irrigation across the state, and, and what do you see? Do you see more of these sodic soil problems on the irrigated ground or in the dry land? You know, we don't have a lot of irrigated from an acreage perspective, but as you can envision in a dry environment, like we have the irrigated end up pulling in quite a bit of, of revenue. I think I've read as much as a third of our, our state revenue is from irrigated land, even though it's probably only about maybe 8 to 10% of our acreage. And, you know, you think about the irrigated stuff, too. I, I'm familiar with on the eastern side of Montana where there's water coming right out of the Yellowstone River and a lot more sulfur, obviously, coming out out of Yellowstone than out of the wells that are drilled. And I know the, the pivots there it makes a big difference if it's river water, if it's well water. Uh, a lot of differences in water quality as you travel across your state. That's for sure. And to answer your first question, we see, I see a little more sodicity on dry land than irrigated and generally in our, in our lower ground, uh, meaning closer to groundwater. 
You know, you, you talk about that, and we've got water moving around in soil all the time. And, yes, even in Montana, there's there's water moving around, although a lot of times uh, our, our listeners, anyway, that call in here like to call when it's dry, and they say, oh, it's Montana. We haven't got rain for a while here. But you're right. As you get that water moving around, it's also moving the salts around. So uh, talk about that low-lying ground. Why does that make sense that, that you'd see more sodic issues there? Yeah, so in order to have sodium in soil, the main source of our sodium is from marine shales that are sometimes a foot below the soil, sometimes 100 feet below the soil. Um, when those are 100 feet below the soil, generally groundwater is, is well below the soil. That sodium just can't get up to plant roots. But if it's just a few feet below the soil, then we have groundwater, what's called perched on top of that, shale, pulling sodium out of the shale, and then sometimes leaving it in the soil. When you look at this year, um, how how is Montana looking? And are you seeing more of these spots than normal, or is it kind of the, the same areas every year? You know, I'd say about the same. I haven't been getting more calls on the sodic areas. We have, I would say, quite a bit more saline soil than than sodic soil, and those in our wetter years have been increasing in size as we get more water, groundwater table comes up, leaves salts, some of which are sodium, most of which are not near the surface. So when you're tackling the saline areas, how how do you address that a little bit differently? So the, the saline areas we have two major approaches. The prevention approach is to find out where that water is coming from. Often it's from a higher area, sometimes on the same farm, oftentimes a neighbor. And in those areas, we really encourage the producer to move away from crop fallow to reduce the amount of water moving down. And the best strategy we found is planting perennial grasses, or alfalfa in what's called those recharge areas. So that's pretty much the, the, the main approach. The more adaptive approach, if, say, you can't do that, would be to plant salt-tolerant, generally, forages in those salter areas because, essentially, not many of our crops grow well in those what we call saline seep areas. That is great advice. I love when there's something proactive as a farmer that I can do. And you mentioned, hey, we got to move away from some of the fallow and get some crop out there growing. That does make a huge difference. It's something that we've been talking with a lot of farmers in Montana now just over the last decade or so that have been moving to more of that. And some of it is in response to problems like you were talking about here with saline areas, but others is just in a uh, an effort to increase profitability on the farm in a little different way. Talking with Clayne Jones with Montana State, Extension Soil Fertility Specialist there. Uh, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Really appreciate hearing what's going on in Montana. We'll love to have you back sometime. No problem. Good luck with all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Let's head down to University of Wyoming. We've got Jay Norton on with us right now. Jay, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. All right, so we're talking about sodic soils today, and I know this is something you run into on, on the rangeland down there and, and possibly uh, on some crop ground too. What what are you seeing in the state of Wyoming? Yeah, the the place I've dealt most with sodic soil problems is in rangelands in reclamation situations where they'll um, 
usually for a gas or oil well pad. They'll salvage soil, and then they spread it back out. But the, the topsoil is so thin over that uh, sodic subsoil that's caused by um, these marine shales that have high sodium content. And then so they'll, they'll end up uh, with higher sodium at the surface than the normal rangelands. And then, and then you have to try to, to treat that so that something will grow. No, I know farmers up in Western North Dakota have been talking about this too, where, where they've done the drilling. They, they often bring a lot of that sodic material up and now they've got sodium to deal with. Is this, is this a process that uh, growers are seeing a, a big impact on in five or 10 years of good management, or is it something that's going to take a lot longer than that to work with? Uh, it, it can take a lot longer than that because usually these, these areas where, where it's a problem, just the fact that there's shallow, salty, and sodic subsoil um, means that there's very little rainfall. They're, they're arid and semi-arid areas, so nothing happens very fast. Uh, most of the amendments that, that we use, like gypsum or something, to, to balance out the, the sodium and, and try to improve the soil, you know, require water to, to work. They have to dissolve, and, and so it, it's a very slow process to get uh, productive rangelands back on those areas. So around these these gas and oil well pads, are they trying to contain that sodium problem to in in a certain way? Are they trying to to use berms or or some sort of of man made control structure to keep the the salt together? Well, usually the the situations I've worked with aren't. It's not material that's coming out of the well or anything like that. It's it's um just sodic soils that are there, but they have a, a non-saline, non-sodic surface horizon that's very important for plant establishment and growth and water infiltration. But it's, it's very easily disturbed because it's so shallow. And so you end up mixing that, that sodic B horizon in with the surface horizon and increasing, you know, making a sodic soil at the surface, which, which is really hard to get anything but uh, noxious weeds like halogen will grow, but that's about all. You know, you think about those areas too, and a lot of those low rainfall areas, it's grazing. Do you see issues with with cattle or livestock around these areas as well? <clears throat> um well, that's that's one of the main uses of of those well pads, either wildlife grazing or cattle grazing, and um, so that's you know why it's important to try to get productive rangelands restored. Um, do you mean are cattle part of the the problem? No, or? no, no. I just I just meant from a nutritional standpoint, are they they taking up a huge uptake of sodium or something like that from the the grasslands there around those areas? Oh, I I haven't heard about issues like that they uh, i guess halogen can be very bad for sheep i'm not an expert on that but uh, i think cattle kind of stay away from halogen which is something that grows on uh, the sodic soil and actually makes it worse but yeah, it's it's interesting as you talk about the the reclamation areas just some of the challenges that come up in this sodic subsoil is something we'll continue to talk about we've been talking with jay norton with the university of wyoming thanks for being on jay we really appreciate it stay tuned you're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. 
How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. If you're looking to get the most out of your foliar nutrition and fungicide programs, ask your ag retailer about Nutex EDA from Sipcam Agro. Nutex EDA has been proven to increase foliar micronutrient tissue levels and maintain those levels for an extended period of time. When tank mixed with fungicides, Nutex EDA helps support plant health, resulting in higher quality and yields. Nutex EDA is an affordable and effective solution that should be part of every grower's high-yield toolbox. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean, weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetuo, and it's burned down and long-lasting residual powers making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. Ah, so Perpetuo's his secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetuo to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. I've got an axe to grind. I hate bromes. Brome grasses can be brutal on winter wheat yields. If you really want to give winter wheat a fighting chance, be brutal right back with Prepare Burn Down Herbicide. Adding Prepare to your glyphosate extends brome control for up to 21 days, giving young wheat the weed-free head start it needs to make something of itself. Because the cleaner the field, the higher the yield. Talk to your retailer or visit preparewinterwheat.com and always read and follow label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're talking today about sodic soils. Just a couple last things that I would throw out there. First of all, in terms of crops, once, so I talked earlier in the show about get drain tile out there. That's definitely number one. So if you aren't putting tile into your sodic areas, you're not going to fix it. I'm going to just tell you that right now. And people can say all they want about, oh, we'll seed some perennial grasses and stuff. Well, you might get something to barely live out there, but we're talking about fixing the problem. Let's fix the problem. You got to tile it. And I'll be honest, I'm not waiting for um, somebody to tell me it's okay to do it on my ground. If it's ground that I've always farmed and it's getting worse, I'm just going to go get it done. 
Okay, so anyway, yes, you got to work with neighbors. Yes, you got to work with NRCS. But the point is, don't be waiting forever to get that get get these things done. Let's let's get going. It's it's time to go. If you got a sodic issue, because like I was saying earlier, every year you wait, things are going to get worse. Every year after you start fixing the problem, things are going to get better. And if you want to fix it for your kids or your grandkids, let's get going. It's going to take years. It's going to probably take decades. So let's get going. In terms of what crops you can raise out there first, most likely it's barley or oats for annual crops. There are some perennial grasses, like some of the wheat grasses will survive. If nothing else, get some kosher to grow out there, Darren. So <laughs> you can at least raise a weed, right? Darren has no response, but I'll just say yeah. this. Well, anything uh, I, <laughs> growing in those sodic areas is important. Yep. So you understand I'm joking about kosher, all right? But the point is you, you got to start working on fixing that soil. And it starts with tile. After that, you're looking at how high are my levels of calcium and sulfur. I want to get those levels of calcium and sulfur up. And on the sulfur side, I want to get that way up because I want to combine the sulfate with the sodium, form a salt, and have it leach out. Okay, so this can be done. This absolutely works. It's just it's going to take time and it's going to take investment. So I want to bring you back to that first story that I told you today about the, the, the younger gal that was crying after our, our soils clinic. And she's just asking, what do I do? And I just said, I, I really hate to tell you this, but you're going to invest a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of years. And it's probably not going to be profitable in those sodic soils for 20 years. That's the sad, that, that's the sad truth. So here's why I bring this up to you. Let's say you're well, like me. Okay, I'm in my early 50s. All right, at this point, is it if, and I and we don't have any sodic spots on our farm anymore, but let's say I had a 10-acre sodic spot. Is it the end of the world if I invest money in 10 acres for the next 20 years and I don't make any money on those 10 acres for 20 years? But I get the soil fixed, so after that point, my kids or grandkids can make money on it. Okay, is that a big deal to me? We farm 3,000 acres. Am I worried about 10? No. Now, if you are a brand new farmer, let's say you're 18 years old, 22 years old, 26 years old, and you probably only farm a few hundred acres, is that 10 acres a big deal to you? Yes. For you, that's trouble. For you, it's going to take investment, it's going to take time, and you go, what am I doing here? I got I to survive in the meantime, especially right now when commodity prices are tough. So that's why the older generation has got to step up and fix the problems rather than leave it for the next generation to do it because they just don't have the economic means in many cases to fix it. So, and it's your ground. You can do whatever you want. You can leave a sodic spot, you know, for the next, whatever, 500 years. That's your call. Uh, or at least as long as you live and you're, however long your family's on that ground. It, it that's your choice. But I'm just saying, I don't know a lot of farmers who love to have dead spots out in their field year after year after year after year. Okay. The other thing is with saline soils, because there is a lot of confusion between the sodic and saline soils. Saline is when it's already in salt form and that's super easy to fix. Put tile out there and it's it. it now, granted, I'm not saying you're going to get rid of all the salt in one year. That also will take some time. But the recovery time is is much quicker than the sodic issue, and you've already got it in the salt form, so you're already halfway home. Okay, so the same thing first though you got to get tile in that ground. 
then you want to do your uh, do your soil testing and just see what you've got. Again, if you've got everything in the salt form already, so it's a saline soil, it's no big deal. You get the tile out there, you have good drainage in your soil, and you're in good shape. Now, as I say good drainage, let's keep in mind, we've got to keep the calcium levels up. We'd like at least 65% and preferably 75% calcium on the base saturation test, and now you're going to be in pretty good shape. That means we have a more porous soil. Okay, keep in mind the more magnesium you have, the less porous your soil is. The more calcium you have, on the flip side, the more porous your soil is. So we want more calcium rather than less. You get tile out there, you have good drainage with natural rain, or if you, let's say, at irrigation, then things are going to improve. Now, last thing I'll mention, and then we'll wind it up here on our sodic soil discussion, water quality with irrigation. If you have not tested your irrigation water, please do so. If you're pumping all kinds of sodium out there, let's just say, then you really have to have good drainage, and you have to be addressing this every year. And part of why we want you thinking about this, even if you don't have a sodic soil today, so chances are 95% of our listeners today do not have a sodic soil today. But we want you soil testing, and we want you paying attention to this, because it shows up very often where I see on soil tests, I go, hey, wait a second here, you're at 1.2% sodium, you're at 1.8%, you're at 2% sodium. Where's it been in the past? If your sodium levels are increasing, stop it now. It's so cheap and easy to stop it now. Please stop it now. You just don't want to get in this situation where 20 years from now you go, huh, I wonder why I have a bunch of dead spots out in my in my field and why my yields are going down, why my profitability is less. You, you just can't have that happen. So if you would like us to look at your soil tests, we're more than happy to do that. If you'd like us to look at your water quality tests, we're more than happy to do that. Uh, just send them in to us, radio at agphd.com. But do everything you can to stay ahead of the sodium or the sodic soil issue, the saline soil issue, because these are two of the worst problems you can get in agriculture. Your most valuable resource on your farm, other than your brain and your willpower, your most valuable resource is your soil. And if you kill your soil, well, you know where you're going. Okay, it's going to be trouble. So sodic saline soil issues. Um, They're real. They're all over the place, and hopefully they're not happening on your farm today. But again, pay attention to your soil tests so it doesn't happen to you. All right, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. Got this one from Joe in Minnesota. He said, I was sitting with a seed salesman the other day, and he made the comment that any nitrogen source in front of soybeans will make the beans lazy. I said, huh? And he claims the plants won't fix nitrogen then and will lose yield or just not pay. Is there any truth to that? Well, there's a shred of truth to that. There's not a lot of truth there, but there's a little bit. So there have been studies done showing that if you have lots of nitrogen on up front, that your soybean plants will produce fewer nodules. Now, at the end of the day, I don't care how many nodules my soybeans produce. I I couldn't care less if they produce 10,000 per plant or if they produce zero per plant. All I care about at the end of the day is did I make money on that ground? Did I produce yield on that ground? And here's where I'm going with this. So quit worrying about you know, all these all this talk and everything else. If you want to try something, try it and prove it to yourself on your farm. 
So when our dad first came to South Dakota back over 50 years ago, almost nobody here was raising soybeans. And what he learned then is he put 100 pounds. He could put 100 pounds of nitrogen on up front, and it paid. He said he'd typically gain 10 extra bushels by putting 100 pounds of nitrogen on up front. Okay, I like those economics. That works great for me. So if you have ground where every other year you're raising soybeans, that's a different deal. You probably don't need much nitrogen. A little bit will probably help you. Uh, the other thing is the timing of the nitrogen. So early in the season, you probably don't need much. But later in the year when the pods are filling, like right now, for example, they need a lot of nitrogen. So if you want to try a couple of things on your farm, you can try some nitrogen up front. You can try some nitrogen mid-season like this. Or you could do a controlled release form of nitrogen, either early season or even right at plant. And then hopefully it's releasing later in the year when your crop really needs it. The other thing we talk about all the time is try to build your soil's organic matter levels. The higher your organic matter, the more nitrogen gets released later in the year for those beans for free every year. So if you have high organic matter, then you usually don't need to add much nitrogen. It's not going to do you much good. All right, well, stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your questions after this. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? Unleash the power of new Impact-Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact-Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2Save3 is a service mark and Impact-Z is a trademark owned by AMVAC Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact-Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Stop losing money from your stored grain with the Enzone Fan Control System from FarmShop MFG. Hot spots and moisture in your bin can cost you thousands in lost revenue. The Enzone monitors outside conditions to run your fans exactly when you want them to, naturally bringing your grain to ideal temperature and humidity. Master bin management with the Enzone. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. More choices, more money. With Bayer Plus Rewards, you choose from our broad portfolio of high-performance products. Earn more money on the eligible products that are right for your farm. And use our new portal to see your purchases, track your rewards, and decide how you want to use them. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to sign in and start earning. That's the advantage of more control in your hands. That's the plus. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Hey Adam, new drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. 
Look out for that tree. In the power lines! Oh, it's in for the house. There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The Laser. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and it is the Ag PhD mailbag time now, and we're taking your calls and questions, 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. Got a couple of things in from Matt, I believe in Iowa. He's saying, got a couple of farms for you guys to look at. There's a 155-acre farm. Let's start with that one first. This one has high pH. And it's a continuous no-till cornfield, and I'm just wondering about how much sulfur I'm going to need to lower the pH to the 6.5 to 7 range. It's rented ground, and so I'm trying to watch my return on investment oh, really no. close. <laughs> you know, my question, my follow-up question, yep. Matt, would be: What's this rental agreement like? Is it year to year? Is it? Oh boy, it's my, it's my dad's brother and he's going to rent it to me for the next 20 years that that does make a difference makes there. a huge difference yeah our, and the reason why i just said oh no <laughs> it trying to fix the soil on rented ground that's rented for the short term doesn't pay so i'm not going to encourage you to do hardly anything on rented ground unless you have a long-term lease or you've got something worked out with the landlord that, you know, maybe someday you'll buy it or that you've got a really cheap rent because they know you're investing money to fix the ground. So let, let's start with this. His, his question was, how much elemental sulfur do you need? No one knows. There's no one on the planet that can tell you exactly what you need. It's going to vary depending on your cation exchange capacity. It's going to vary depending on the type of sulfur that you buy. So if you get a good sulfur source that is, let's say, low or a, a, a small particle size is what I'm trying to say. If it's got a small particle size, so it'll break down quickly and come available relatively quickly in well-drained soil, then that, that changes things and you can lower that pH more quickly and more effectively. So that's all great. Here's where I'm going with this. Your sulfur levels on average are like five parts per million. That's really, 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 really low. So you need a lot of sulfur. And the point here is if I'm picking what type of sulfur I'm going to buy, you have the choice of sulfate or sulfur. I'm going to pick a sulfur because when that converts over, the sulfur, elemental sulfur will convert over to sulfate, it will form sulfuric acid. And that will naturally lower the pH a little bit. Now, how much should you be putting on? Well, here's part of the problem you've got. It's variable soil. I see a 5.7 pH. I want to make darn sure I don't put any elemental sulfur there, or at least keep my rate you know, low, not put on any more than what the next crop's going to use and call it good. But then you've got spots of eight. So what we do on our farm in fields like that is we set up a variable rate map. And we're going with in the range of 15 to 25 pounds of elemental sulfur for each tenth of a point above where we want that that uh, uh, pH to be on an average cation exchange capacity of 20, maybe 25. You've got 
can exchange capacities here as high as 28 and as low as 15. So it's going to vary. Where you have a 15 can exchange capacity, you're going to want less elemental sulfur. Again, nobody on the planet can tell you exactly how much it is how much you're supposed to use. Every chart we've ever referenced, every university that's put a chart out, they're all wrong. Uh, so I, I don't know exactly what it is. But I do know you should be using some elemental sulfur, provided you've got good drainage. What you always have to do is ask yourself, how did my pH get high in the first place? Was it naturally that high when they broke the ground years ago? Mm, probably not. So here, here's just the very first one. 8 pH. Okay, the cation exchange capacity is 21, so it's heavy soil. Sulfur level is 3. 3 parts per million, that's it. Now here's one other thing that's concerning to me. You only have 2.1% organic matter, so it's not like it's super high in organic matter. And you only have 1.5% base saturation K. So that's really, really, really low. The potassium is hurting you worse than anything else. So where I'm going with this is I want you to do everything you can to feed that crop well outside of this pH issue that you're concerned about. So when I look at your phosphorus levels, they are completely deficient. Your potassium level, completely deficient. Your sulfur level, completely deficient. Your zinc level, really low. I don't even have levels on manganese, copper, iron, and boron. So for really all our listeners, when you are analyzing your soil and looking at your soil test, and you're hearing some fertilizer dealer trying to sell you N, P, and K again, um, let's look at everything. And see, what all do we need here? So my assumption is we probably haven't been putting on enough sulfur, definitely haven't been focused on the micronutrients. We probably have been putting on potassium at removal rate instead of getting the soil built up so we have better standability, we have better grain quality, we have overall better yield. So there are a lot of other things that I would fix. I, I'm not, I, I don't know that I'm going to invest in that ground anything out of the ordinary in elemental sulfur, I'd use a little bit, but don't get too carried away. Don't spend yourself into the poorhouse because you got a lot of things to fix here. Okay. So the other field, the 270-acre field, he's averaging 275 bushel corn, or that's his yield goal there. So they're they're really pulling some yield off that one. That one is more conventional till. It's not hilly like the other. Yeah, and the phosphorus levels are better and the potassium levels are better on the other field. So that starts to explain what's going on on why you have higher yields. So I get it. So what, what's, what's so the question So just on wondering it? if you see some things there that, that you say, okay, we could shoot for a little higher yield over here. Well, you said yeah, P and that's K it. are better. The, the P and there... K are better, but I don't, I don't have levels on most of my micronutrients. Well, and my and, zinc's and still here's, low. Here's the micro comment. He said he's been foliar feeding micros <laughs> with manganese, copper, iron, boron, and he said good no. luck keeping micro levels up. Mm. That's why he didn't have them tested. I think you do need to test them anyway, Matt, just to see where you're at so you aren't – uh, yeah, getting getting confused on things because it does get tricky looking between tissue samples and well, if two seventy five is your yield goal, you can pull a lot of micros off there too. So I'm just not a real big believer in doing lots of foliar feeding. You can do a little bit, but to do lots, I I just I don't I don't see it. And when I look at some of your zinc levels, it's hurting your yield right now because you're clear down below two parts per million on zinc in some cases where you've got good levels of phosphorus. You got to keep the phosphorus and zinc ratio uh, fairly good, eight to one, ten to one, maybe. 12 to 1, something like that will help you. But 
yeah, I mean, there are many things that I would suggest to you. Now, again, if it's rented ground, then I am concerned about you putting a bunch of money out there and not getting that money back. So and back quickly. So that's why we talk more about banding. We talk more about strip till in those rented fields. Otherwise, I, if you can get a long-term lease, great. Now you don't have to worry so much about putting fertilizer out there and not recovering it. I want to come back to the zinc thing for a second. Zinc's super cheap. You can go out there with zinc sulfate and you can take your levels from 2 to 8 or 10 or whatever if you've got high phosphorus areas. And it doesn't cost much money at all. So a lot of these things are relatively inexpensive if you do them the right way. All right. Thanks for the questions, Matt. We really appreciate that. I uh, got a comment here from Myron. He said you were talking about musk thistle and just was going to give you a heads up. I've always used 2,4-D. I just try to spray it when it's in the rosette stage and I've had good luck. You know, when we look at those biennial weeds, thanks for the comment too, by the way, Myron. When we look at those biennial weeds, you're right. If we can get it in year one before yep. it starts putting any seed on, yes. best time to do it. I'm 100% with you on that. Yeah, I would just say this. You've got to make sure you're using the right rate. We see a lot of people cutting the rate out in pastures. If you use a high enough rate, you're in good shape. And I, we, we don't ever say 2,4-D can't work on biennial thistles, but we do say, hey, if you've got a lot of them and you're really worried about it, and especially depending on how the growth is, and you got them some in year one, some in year two, that's where milestone definitely is better. But if you're getting control and you're not spending a whole lot, that's awesome. Now, I would caution you, if you're using the old 2,4-D, you got to be really careful about drift and volatility. But other than that, uh, that's that, that's a, that's a good deal if he's getting control. All right, got one from Francine here about killing wild strawberries in perennial ryegrass lawns. Uh, they've been using 2,4-D and Trimec for years and yeah. just haven't been able to completely take them out. Uh, he, he, so what I was about- just saying for the last uh, last question, use a high enough rate. A lot of these lawn products are so watered down. I just, I can't stand it. And then they'll tell you, put even more water with it. I'm like, oh my goodness, what are we, our concentration's not high enough. So my assumption here is you you're putting and, too much water And then it. you've also got uh, perennial, well, in this case, weed, because you've got strawberries growing where you don't want them. So perennials are tough. There's no doubt yep. about that. We'll talk a little more about that right after this short break. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. When it comes to innovative herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Credit Extreme, the herbicide with dual salt technology that makes all the difference. Faster uptake, quicker rain fastness, and better control in variable weather, something we've all had our fair share of. When you need more powerful weed control for challenges like lamb's quarters and velvet leaf, with excellent safety to Roundup Ready crops, you need Credit Extreme. New Farm and Credit Extreme, here to help. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm fall of 2014. 
Pushing many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, They're able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. More choices, more money. With Bayer Plus Rewards, you choose from our broad portfolio of high-performance products. Earn more money on the eligible products that are right for your farm. And use our new portal to see your purchases, track your rewards, and decide how you want to use them. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to sign in and start earning. That's the advantage of more control in your hands. That's the plus. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean, weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetual, and it's burned down in long-lasting residual powers, making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. Ah, so Perpetual's his secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetual to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Just before the break, we were talking about killing wild strawberries that have gotten out into a perennial ryegrass lawn. Personally, I just like to eat the strawberries, but I get it. If you want to get rid of them and just have your lawn to enjoy, what can you do? They've been using 2,4-D and Trimac, and you talked about just, hey, we've got to have that concentration of product a lot higher in order to kill a perennial with those products. This is the challenge, though, in lawns because we don't want to use Roundup. We don't want to kill nope. the nope. grass. Yep. And what do you have that really will get down and into that? And you can't use system? something like Toradon that would kill it because you've got trees around. And, I mean, it's just it's not labeled for those types of applications. So you got to go 2,4-D. You're probably going to have to hit it three times a year for three years. And then on top of that, you've got to be more concentrated. So, yes, uh, less water, and I'm going to assume your control is going to improve. All right, thanks for that question. Got a plant tissue sample in. This one comes from Adam in Virginia. He said, I've got a really high-yielding field. I'm at R5 right now. It's a group 4.6 bean we planted in late April. Uh, we've been 10 inches above average rainfall this year, so hence we're running a little short of some potassium here late in the season. Just wondering what you think. The recommendation came back to put on some more potassium. They recommend a couple of applications, but we're getting late in the season. Just wondering what you think about applying some potassium foliar to try to support these plants and finish them out, or what your plan would be. Okay, so yeah, I would I would do a little bit foliar if you want to put some on in, on the soil. In light soil with lots of rain, you can get it down into the soil and into the root system. When you ask about what we would do, we're we're in a different geography. We don't have the rainfall to get it in there. We've we've had no rain for well, I'll take that back. We had a half an inch of rain. That's the only rain we've had in almost a month now. That's not enough to move potassium down 
in a heavy soil, let in a light soil, let alone a heavy soil like we have. So anyway, uh, I think your plan needs to be much, much, much different than my plan. But yeah, I do a little bit foliar. I'd probably put a little bit on in the soil. Is the lack of potassium hurting you? Most likely it is. Soybeans need a crazy amount of potassium, more, much more than what a good corn crop does. So you got to keep thinking about that all the time. And and I would just say, make sure you're starting your season with high levels of potassium in your soil, because once you fall behind, it's hard to catch back up again. All right. Thanks for the question, Adam. Really appreciate that. Got a couple different ones. These are from Gary in Ohio. First of all, he said a herbicide question for you. You guys were talking about hemp dogbane the other day. I'm wondering, we've got a pat, we're out in the pasture. What about using Tordon or the pasture yeah. herbicides? How do they do on hemp dogbane? We've got some red clover in the pasture, though. So we would consider spot spraying with one of those sure. products so as not to kill too much clover. Yeah, Tordon should do okay. Okay, that's one thing. But it'll definitely kill the clover, and it will kill any legume that's going to be in those spots for probably 10 years or more. Tordon has a lot of residual. Okay, uh, then another question. I just gave you a oh. couple of plant tissue samples here. He said, I sent you a couple of plant tissue samples. 12 months ago, I put three tons of high calcium lime on this field. So... Keep that in the back of your mind. He said, I also have soil tests that I could send you to if you think that'll help answer this question better. I seem to have a magnesium-calcium deficiency in corn. I'm wondering, should I be applying magnesium and calcium when I put my nitrogen application on that could be done either with a liquid side dress or a dry spreader? um, So according to the plant tissue test, it says that calcium and magnesium are low to deficient, and it gives the values. But <laughs> right. are they low right? to deficient for what? For a, And this is one that, that we hear a lot of the high-yield guys say, is that low for a 600-bushel crop? Is that low for a 200-bushel crop? Is it low for a 100-bushel crop? I don't know. So I don't know what your yield goal is to know, all right, right are we really short? And it would be nice to see the soil samples. Yep. Okay, but, so, so here's what we would encourage you to do. Run some trials. So could you put some magnesium sulfate out there and try that in some strips? Absolutely. You could try a little bit of gypsum or, you know, maybe some liquid calcium or something. Try that in some strips. My guess is your magnesium sulfate might help you. The the calcium sulfate or gypsum, I, I doubt it. I doubt that's going to make any difference. I doubt that if you put any calcium on at this stage, it's going to help. But you're not going to know unless you try. So try it on a small scale. That's probably what I would do. Am I super concerned when I see the magnesium and the calcium down at those levels? No, I'm not. I'm probably more concerned with the potassium. I'm probably a little more concerned with maybe the iron and magnesium, which are also deficient, uh, than, than I am the magnesium and calcium. But I could be wrong. I, I Try a little bit, and then you'll know. All right. Uh, I get a question here. This one comes from Matt, and he said, I'm in northeast Colorado, and we do strip till. Now, you can notice in my picture, and he sent a picture of corn, and it, it's a nice tall corn, and then it's much shorter for a few rows, and then it's back up tall again. He said, you were making a comment about uh, strip till pass and the planter maybe causing some wavy corn. I'm wondering if this is what you're talking about. Well, first of all, what we were talking about is the, the and you said not giving enough time between strip till pass and planter. Actually, giving too much time can cause some issues if you're really, really dry. So, if you're in dry land and use strip till in the spring 
and then you dry that ground out by doing the tillage and you wait a while before you plant, that could be a bad thing unless you catch a rain. And on the flip side, if you do it too soon and you put on way too much fertilizer, then you could actually burn some roots off. So what this would take is a little bit of investigation. So what I would do, so basically he's got wavy corn here. What I would do is go out into those rows and it, okay, just it's pretty say. late now, but I, I would probably look at, um, do some root evaluation you're gonna, you're on the good get plants off, and the middle plants. You're going to get off on the wrong thing, I'm afraid, if you don't hear the rest of the story. So the peaks and valleys of the waves are all 12 rows apart, which tells me it probably has something to do with the planter or the strip tiller. Right. So it could be compaction that you've got out in those spots. Well, it could be. It also could be there wasn't fertilizer getting out into one of those rows. Maybe there was too much fertilizer getting out toward the end. I, you know, I don't know. And may, yeah, maybe those rows are planted uh, deeper. So he said I, the only I, I difference he's got, uh, his brother's corn right across the road doesn't look as extreme as this. And he said the only difference they did, the fertility was pretty close, but he said he ran the shanks a little bit shallower on his side, maybe by an inch or two, only five to six inches deep. Uh, he thought the machine ran better and produced more mounds than ditches. Uh versus his brother ran a little bit deeper. Yeah, like I say, you just have to go out there and do some digging around and check your planting depth. I would see, you know, what you're seeing for overall root mass, but this would have been a little bit easier to figure out when the plants were at, let's say, V5. If you were seeing waviness at V5, then you would probably be able to much more easily see, did we burn roots off by getting too much fertilizer? Um, and, you know, you could do a little bit of soil testing, too, and see, hey, where where my crop is low, is that where I'm short on fertilizer? And where my crop is tall, is that where I have more fertilizer? I, I mean, there's so many things that could have happened here, but those are just some of my first thoughts. All right. Thanks for the question. Really appreciate that. Um, got this one from Alan in Nebraska. He said, you guys were talking about sulfur last week, and I believe it was... Then you guys talked about how to enter your yield goals in a program and then transfer it to the cab. I'm wondering, how do you do those recommendations? How do you move it to your equipment? And wondering what John Deere has as Wait, well. Wait, say that, say that one more time. Well, he's just start. talking about building variable rate maps. Oh, and, and for, the, for the sulfur. For sulfur application. Yeah, all it was is we just look at the pH and... I, I had just I was talking about this earlier in the show where we'll go fifteen to twenty five pounds per point of pH so per tenth of a point with of the pH. SMS system is that what we're doing? Yes, yes. So that's what we're using. But yeah, if you I, talk, I mean, if you talk to your your local John Deere dealer there, or agronomist, they'll they'll tell you, hey, here's the programs that we're using that'll work with yep. the system that you've got that yes. are that are compatible. Yep, but you can do it. Okay. Um, Got one from Scott here. Oh, we may not have time for this. He said, you were talking about moldboard plowing versus no-till, and I just look at what does nature do? Nature isn't tilling the soils, and sometimes there are positive benefits from having soils a little cooler. Really appreciated your discussion. Well, yeah, absolutely. There are, there are pluses and minuses to no-till, to strip-till, to conventional till. You just have to look at your particular situation and see and go from there. All right, we talked about sodic soils on today's show, and I guess just a kind of a closing thought here. When you've got big 
problems out in certain spots of your farm. The good thing about sodic soils, it's often smaller areas within big fields where you say, all right, I've got a little spot there that I need to address. Maybe it's by improving drainage. Maybe it's by some fertility inputs. Maybe, as Brian had mentioned, it might be just getting anything to grow out there, getting any kind of organic matter out there. The most important thing is not to give up. And if you've got questions, you can always send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.